Welcome to Plug In For More, brought to you by EVUniverse.com. EVUniverse is your one-stop shop for all things related to the electric vehicle. Here on this podcast, our goal is to educate, inspire, and hopefully make your transition into the electric vehicle marketplace a lot less intimidating. And now, here are your hosts, Mike, Tom, and Bryant. So uh, welcome, everyone. This uh, this podcast is going to take us back to the past. Um, it was funny. I brought my EV6 to a Cars and Coffee this morning for the first time. And uh, I actually had a ton of people looking at it. There's um, a lot of interest. There's some Ferraris there and tons of C8 Corvettes, but my car got a lot of interest. I actually couldn't leave. I got flagged down as I was leaving. Someone wanted to talk to me. But at the Cars and Coffee, I ran into my um, my old buddy, Steve Haas, and we started talking about EV1s. And I think we we kind of teased this on a few episodes ago when Mike was talking about selling his Ford GT, um, and he was mentioning the Tesla Roadster is possibly the most valuable EV. But I brought up the EV1 as, oh, you know what? An EV1 might be more valuable because there's not that many left. And anyway, conversation just with Steve, my friend Steve, who had some experiences I thought would bring him on the podcast and uh, he can share some of uh, some stories around the EV1 and his experience. So welcome, Steve. And do you just want to introduce your background and kind of what you've what you've uh, been involved in, not just the EV world, but you're you're pretty well known in the automotive space as well, Steve. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. This is really fun. And it was fun seeing your EV6 this morning at Cars and Coffee. You were literally parked two cars down from two Ferraris, and I think your car got more attention. <laughs> what does that say about people's stereotypes of Ferrari owners, perhaps? But uh, exactly. Anyway, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Steve. I've been in the car world for a lot longer than you guys have. Uh, I started at Saturn back in 1991 after finishing the University of Michigan. And a couple of years into my time there, the rumor started that we were going to be handling the marketing and sales for the electric cars for General Motors through Saturn. I was in Tennessee at the time, and I thought, this is the most interesting thing I've ever heard. I'm going to move to California and do that. It was like an old cartoon where they ask for volunteers, and everybody takes a step backwards, leaving the one guy out in front who has no career aspirations. So I felt like that. So I ended up moving out to California. Amongst other duties at Saturn, I was very early on with the electric vehicle sales, marketing, infrastructure setup, training. It was a really fun time. After that, um, I've been with eBay Motors and Haggerty and been a consultant and done other things in the car world. Um, last 15 years, really focused on classic cars, but still a huge electric car fanatic. So, Steve, I've got a question as far as you know your your experience with the EV1. So, it sounds like you guys did a lot of the marketing and infrastructure around that. Can you kind of give me your thoughts on what it was like back then as far as, you know, General Motors and what they were thinking as far as promoting it. Do they think this was going to be a, a long-term transition? Turns into you know what it did today, or was it you know really something where they were you know just a compliance vehicle? Um, you know, I think a lot of people have seen the um, the movie. You know, what killed the electric vehicle or elect- the electric car? The electric car, like, yeah. 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 Can you just kind of walk us through what, what your thoughts were at that time um, and, and what you were feeling? So I understand the thought that it was just a compliance vehicle. So to back up a little bit, starting around 1991, California started a mandate that 
think by 1998 or 2000, 10% of cars sold in California had to be quote unquote zero emission vehicles. Today that sounds crazy. I think we're at not even 1% still, even with the success of Tesla and all these other models. At the time, it was a huge shock to the system. Um, General Motors spent over a billion and a half dollars developing and marketing the EV1. At the time, we certainly didn't think of it just as a compliance vehicle, although production was limited. Over a four-year span, roughly two generations, they built roughly 1,200 of them. Marketing, I guess one of the complaints in Who Killed the Electric Car was that they didn't spend huge dollars marketing these on television and Super Bowl ads all over the country. But keep in mind, they were only sold, I should say leased, in California and Arizona originally. So all the marketing was focused there. We actually built a uh, waiting list for these about three times longer than the number of cars we had available. So from that perspective, I'd say it's, it's really hard to say we were unsuccessful at marketing the EV1 because we had three buyers for every car we built, but there were long delays. Also keep in mind, there was no infrastructure at all at the time. There was no public charging. General Motors spent a lot of money building that. And one of the projects I worked on was working with large partners to install public chargers. So it wasn't like you were going to put a bunch of chargers on the side of the road. We worked with places like Ralph Supermarkets, Costco's in California, Arizona. And pretty much all the Costco's in California ended up putting 220-volt level 2 chargers in. Um, because the idea was... It, you, know, you had a car with only 60 miles of range in the first generation, and it jumped up to about 100, 110 in the second generation. But it took about two, three hours to get that level of charge at 240 volts. So we wanted to put chargers where people were going to be waiting anyway. And of course, the demographics aligned well with you know, folks at these stores wanted. So it was interesting at the time. And then it's also fun to look back, I guess, are interesting because while the state had a mandate that we had to sell these things, there were very few incentives for people to buy them. So they had a mandate to say you have to sell these things, but here's a very simple incentive. Hey, you can use the HOV lane, which is much more complicated when you have a 60-mile range. Staying in motion was much more important than just getting a nice, fast lane in your Prius, right? But they vetoed that twice. So we never even had that incentive. So it's a, it was a crazy time. We you know, managed to build about 500 public chargers all over the states, uh, western states. We had all sorts of famous people leasing these cars. Uh, we, a lot of the marketing was focused on events, getting people behind the wheel. It was a very impressive car. I still think it's probably, I don't have the data behind it, but I think it's still probably one of the most efficient cars ever sold. You, know, you had a 60 mile range with lead acid batteries. But yeah, I think you had 12 and a half kilowatts of power on board. Wow. So, That's incredible. You know, you're talking a car with the equivalency of about 180 miles a gallon. Because the car was other than the batteries, which weighed 1,200 pounds, the rest of the car was aluminum and magnesium, super aerodynamic. It was quite a kick to drive that thing. At the time, it felt fast. Seven and a half seconds here to 60 in 1996 was quite an, quite an achievement. <laughs> of course, all that coming off the, off the go was a, felt even more impressive. Steve, uh, to your point, zero to 60 in seven seconds, super fast. Now we've got the Tesla, Plaid, you know, 1.9. I'm curious, two, two quick questions. 
do you did you feel like at the time the ev1 was just too far ahead of its time um that you know like you, you mentioned no no charging infrastructure no you know incentive to buy but the technology was i mean 60 miles 100 miles there's still evs being sold like the mazda for example and others that have ranges like that do you feel like the ev1 was just too far ahead of its time and that's why it didn't take off or do you think it was more of like this was just meant to prove that evs could exist and then they could you know improve upon it and actually sell something like like the volt when they eventually got to market what was the purpose of the ev1 was it to sell it or is it more just to test it and see how it went uh, tough to say i don't know that the market was ready remember gasoline was about a dollar 35 a gallon at the time and general motors was making ten thousand dollars a pop profit selling hummer h2s so the technology was there but we were losing a fortune in every car with the volumes we were making they were handbook cars i think it was a way to go after early adopters i think the biggest failure was not to capitalize on that initial product was something new. They had hybrid versions of the EV1 platform driving around in 1997, 1998. But General Motors was really bankrupt at the time, eventually went bankrupt not that many years later. And we had to focus on cars that were profitable. And the EV1 wasn't the only, I misspoke earlier, it was not the only electric car being offered at the time. Honda had one called the EV Plus. Toyota sold an electrified version of the RAV4. General Motors also had a S10 pickup truck that was converted to electric that they sold to utilities in Georgia and California. So it was very early days. I personally, I think we were kind of caught in a corner, right? We had on one hand the desire to capture a new market, to brand General Motors as a, a leader in technology, but you also had this mandate by the state, and it. Put General Motors and the other manufacturers in a position where, on one hand, you're trying to sell a product, on the other hand, you're trying to fight this mandate. And you were talking, it seemed like you were talking on both sides of your mouth. I think if the market had been left alone or to grow at a more gradual pace, you know, at a natural pace, I think maybe we would have seen some cars earlier on. Steve, were you aware of any discussions um, to move the battery technology to lithium ion? back then or is that not not spoken of second gen moved to um nickel metal hydride lithium ion lithium polymer didn't exist yet it was very very early We're, the ev1 stopped production in 1999 2000 i don't think that technology even existed at the time at least not in production yeah i mean i know the the tesla roadster was the first you know, I guess, quote unquote mass pr produced um, lithium ion cell battery um, it, you know just more curious if there was you know if you'd heard whisperings of you know they were thinking of doing that or anything or if that was not even something that ran across your desk I don't know I know General Motors did invest in a battery manufacturer that was trying to perfect the uh, nickel metal hydride technology I don't recall hearing anything about lithium polymer if it was it was very early just a feature technology at the time. But if you can imagine what an EV1 would have for range, it would still have a 1200 pound battery pack of lithium ion with everything else the same with today's more efficient motors and drive electronics and everything else. You potentially have a car with a 600 mile range. Incredible. 
So question for you also, I mean, have you kept up with where, I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of information out there on the EV ones being um, gathered up, crushed, et cetera. Um, that's been documented over and over again, but you know, do you know where the other ones are? Cause I think there's only a handful left. So of the roughly 1200 that were built, 20 were saved. I know General Motors has a running example um, in their heritage center because they actually brought it out to the Audrey and Concord last fall. I saw it. I remember driving that same car. It was a red one. Um, to my knowledge, there's only one other functioning car. I can't prove it, but the rumor is that Francis Ford Coppola has a running example of his museum that is winding in Napa Valley. The rest of them were disabled in our museums or universities. So it's probably one of the rarest cars that you can get your hands on a driving EV1. If you could get a chassis, I think it would be really interesting to retrofit with some modern batteries and a Tesla drivetrain. I think it would be a monster. Yeah, I found an article that there was an EV1 that was located abandoned in a Atlanta parking structure in 2019. Yeah, that was one of the universities down there. It wasn't truly abandoned. They just left it parked there. I don't know why. Covered oh. <laughs> in dust. I think I saw pictures of that. Pretty sad. Hmm. Yeah, I know the Peterson has one in their museum. A few other museums have them as well. Smithsonian. Steve, I mean, if, if an EV1 would go to auction at Pebble Beach or trade privately, what is your estimate of, you know, I mean, it's hard to say, but what is your estimate? What, what would it go for? I mean, are these collectible? Do people want these? Like, what are your thoughts? You know, people collect the darndest things. I think if you had one that was static, I think it would still sell because somebody could probably take that chassis and do something with it. If you had a running one sold, well, what's a Tesla, early Tesla Roadster selling for now? Yeah. So, well, so I mean, they, they range, but I mean, the um, most recent sales that I'm aware of, private party and um, in public, is they range anywhere from ninety to two hundred fifty thousand. So they're in that kind of ballpark. Um, I think on a few of the auction sites in the last few weeks, there's been a few that have gone for around one hundred and fifty or so. So, um, and only a couple of those are, I would say truly special roadsters like some of the validation prototypes and the sig 100 series which are more the you know the first 100 built or again the validation prototypes that ended up being sold um a run-of-the-mill tesla roadster um i think you're talking more, most of those are for sale between 120 140 right now yeah of course you wouldn't be able to get any parts for <laughs> maintain it but Something would be a pretty cool collector piece. You know, the old Tesla Roadster is 125. I don't see why a uh, an EV1 that you just can't get anywhere else couldn't be worth half a million dollars. It's not in my budget anyway. It's just a total guess. Sure. Maybe I only be seven. <laughs> you're listening to the Plug In for More podcast. If you're looking for information on electric vehicles, electric vehicles components, or information on how to reduce your carbon footprint. Look no further than EVUniverse.com. EVUniverse.com is your one-stop shop for all things related to electric vehicle. What was it like to drive the EV1? It was so far advanced at the time. It was a lot of fun to drive. I drove one, and one funny story, I drove one from Sacramento to Lake Tahoe. We had a group of five of us in EV1s. We had to take a 240-volt charger, which was about the size of a payphone, not that it 
before either, but we had that in the trunk with a bunch of adapters. We had to stop three times to go the 90 miles from Sacramento to Lake Tahoe because it was all uphill. Um, we stayed the night at a hotel and we had a long extension cord out the window to charge the car 110 volt power. And when we left Lake Tahoe, we made it to Sacramento without stopping with a half a charge because we were regenerating all the way down the mountain. So if you've ever made that trip, it's a, you know, you hit elevation about 9,000 feet. You know, it stopped traffic. The car looked like a spaceship. It still looks like a spaceship. It's still the most aerodynamic car ever sold, I think, in the world, 0.19. You know, it had a lot of funny things. Like, it didn't have a key. We had a keypad. We typed in a code and a start button. This is the days when every car still had keys. I think we were just starting to get remote controls to unlock the doors. You know? So it was, it was pretty cool. And you, you know, had to stop and answer a lot of questions. I once worked the uh, LA Auto Show. I think it was 1995. So it was about a year before the car came out. And there weren't any people out there who really knew the product. So I was there for four days. And it was basically the same questions over and over again. How far, how fast, how much. I think I couldn't walk or speak after that. Um, but it was really, really fun because people were excited about it. Um, but there was a lot of um, hesitancy. A lot of, you know, I don't think the market was quite ready for it. Again, gas was really cheap. People didn't really see the need for it. But then when you got people behind the wheel, it was always fascinating, you know, to see their reaction because their their initial thought was this thing's going to be like a golf cart. It's going to be really slow. But when you stepped on it, it just threw you back in the seat. You know. We had the equivalent of 137 horsepower, but it was just so instantaneous. People weren't used to that. So we spent a lot of time behind the wheel doing test drives. That's some of the big uh, tech employers in Northern California that test drive programs. I remember taking one up to Seattle, uh, took the board of directors from Costco for rides in the car because we were working with them to build that charging infrastructure I mentioned earlier. And you know these guys would be zooming down the street. 60 miles an hour just because they it was so much fun to hit the gas mm. accelerator pedal on that car the gas um, so it was really a unique experience you were driving something nobody else had driven it's pretty cool and so like with we were talking about like with the range limited range and you know and by speed comparisons to today like and and what i'm setting up here is making fun of bryant this we're on the same page um <laughs> Brian has some range anxiety and he likes his eco mode on his EV6, which I know EV and Kia calls it eco drive mode. But I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's it's old man drive mode. And it sounds okay. like the EV1 just was like all all the time old man drive mode. But is, is that accurate or is there, did you have like different modes you could actually if you really wanted to drive? Because it sounds like a Brian type of car. <laughs> yeah, it was all controlled by your right foot because there was no mode, electronic mode on the car. Um, it depended on where you had to go. If I had a full charge and I knew I only had to drive 10 miles and could plug it in again, we drove the heck out of it. Sure. I remember once we were driving to an event in Santa Barbara. So we picked up the car from a Saturn dealer in Oxnard. It's not that far, but we knew we weren't going to have any chargers in Santa Barbara. So we'd have to drive to the event have the car display and then drive back to Oxnard. And there's a big mm. hill, I think, going back that direction. And it was 86 degrees that day. So we're like, do we open the windows and lose and create drag? Do we run the air conditioning? So we were running with the windows closed and the air conditioning off on an almost 90 degree day because we were so anxious about 
getting back. We had a 110 volt charger in the trunk, so the worst case scenario, we could find a gas station and maybe they'd let us plug in. And eight hours later, we could probably go another 10 miles. Oh, that's crazy, crazy, Steve. I think uh, is Steve. I have a my, kind of my like last question for you is, you know, what's your favorite EV1 story you shared? This morning they were limited to like what eighty miles an hour because otherwise they're going to take off. I mean, what's your what's your favorite EV one story? You've got so many of uh, of something that's kind of like cutting edge and uh, the grandfather of what we have today for electric vehicles. Yeah, the car was so aerodynamic that it was governed to eighty miles an hour, not because it couldn't do faster. Only governed if it could probably do one hundred and thirty five, but because it would lift off the ground. So that time we were coming back from Lake Tahoe down I eighty. Just put it in neutral and started coasting. And once you hit 80, 85 miles an hour, because you were in neutral, the governor wasn't involved. I almost lost the steering on the car. It was just lifting off the ground. There was no downforce on it. So that was probably the most terrifying experience. Um, I remember taking the mayor of Fontana for a ride in the car. And speed limit around the city hall was 25 or 30 miles an hour. He was doing full on 80. Like, slow down, slow down. He goes, it's okay, I'm not going to get a ticket. I'm the mayor. I'm like, I don't care about a ticket. I'm going to kill somebody. <laughs> you know, it just brought up the worst and the best in people. But I think the biggest thing was just meeting the most interesting people with that car. You know, Francis Ford Coppola, a lot of the actors in L.A., a lot of these tech entrepreneurs. You know, put it in perspective, the biggest technology of the day for kind of personal computing was the palm we had some techie guys in the Bay Area who hacked into the OBD flood and created a program for the Palm Pilot so they could monitor with more detail what was going on with the propulsion system on the car. They wanted like micro amperage of regen. They wanted all these details. So these guys started selling to other EV1 lessees, you know, mounting brackets and plugs and software so they could mount their Palm Pilots on the dashboard of the EV1 so they can get all this data. You know, it was really, a, you know, it's crazy to think about that now. No one's going to hack into their EV6. So. That's fantastic. Well, Steve, I, I really want to, I want to thank you for all the stories and the background of the EV1 and, um, you know, obviously you're a wealth of knowledge. So again, thank you for joining us and uh, we'll see you, see you around. Yeah. I look forward to talking again and thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Plug In for More. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, check out the one-stop EV marketplace, eVuniverse.com. Until next time.